We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We pay amongst the highest rates for data in the world, which creates another question regarding this entire profit motive of these companies and, as you say, the proprietorship in the way they operate. Yes, absolutely. So you can kind of telescope outwards from this incident because back in 2003, as you may recall, we also had a major technical breakdown when this power failure on the Northeast Coast affected about 50 million people. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 183, pH Factor, Network Failure. What are we learning? Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Network failure, which can mean many things, but in this particular case, we're talking about the Rogers National failure that happened on July 8th, uh, began at 4.45 a.m., affected some 10 to 12 million subscribers and well over 2 million internet users. And to differentiate that, when I say subscribers, I mean people who are using mobile phones and so on. So just to put that into perspective, that's about one-third or close to one-third of all the users in the country because essentially... Bell, Telus, and Rogers control about 90% of all subscribers to wireless and internet. So that gives you a bit of the scale of what occurred. And this was not the first time, by the way. Rogers had another major outage back in April of 2021, which they said was a software issue. This particular time, it was what they called a maintenance issue, which we won't get into the details of. Suffice to say that it affected a lot of people and a lot of institutions and emergency services, 911, and all the banking. And without getting into details about that, you can only imagine the disruption, the level of disruption that this created. Well, yeah. And then you have to ask, well, what did or didn't they do since the first failure to prevent something like this from happening? As I've understood it, they've poured something like $10 billion this time around into rectifying the issue. And not to get too technical, but it has something to do with separating out wireless from wired services so that if one goes down, there's the backup is the other. And why that wasn't thought through after the first breakdown or failure in 2021 is a very good question. And that whenever that happens, heads roll. So they lost their chief technical officer this time around as a result of that. Yes, they did. And, and the issue is also the connection of the telecom companies themselves, because they're all kind of interconnected. And part of the discussion that's going on now on a federal level is to get the inner workings between these companies to be refined and improved so that one can always pick up the slack of the other. Mm -hmm. There is a certain degree of that in place already, as far as I understand. Some kinds of piggybacking does happen across these big companies. The question really is, why wasn't it enough in this case to very quickly get people back online? So that's a question I don't know, I haven't heard the answer to at this point. But also one of the repercussions is that people might have 
passed away, died during this episode from not having access to 911, for example. And so there's lawsuits pending against Rogers for that failure and the consequences of that. So it's not just a technical failure, it's people suffering as a result when that happens. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem in this particular case was that the transition, when it was supposed to occur, the other two telecom companies could not penetrate fluidly and completely into the Rogers system. So for example, if you were a Bell or TELUS user, you couldn't communicate with Rogers customers. Yeah. So the problem was that you had a backup, but you still didn't have a fluid connections for all three. So the questions that have arisen out of all this, including the monopolization of the systems, the fact that these three companies have so much control, and as you said, the failure of these things, the banks, the purchasing capabilities for purchasing items, you couldn't do it because all the systems were down that connected the payment networks as well. Right. So it was a huge economic upset given the situation. And we're only talking about the technical levels here. We're not even beginning to talk about the psychological effects, like some person suddenly waking up in the morning and doing their routine thing and uh, realizing that nothing is working. And then usually when these things happen, you think, well, I'll check back in half an hour, 45 minutes, but an entire day went by. Yes, that's right. Very, very strange. But you see, the thing is, Peter, there's proprietary technology that these companies have and that they jealously keep hidden behind their vaults, if you like, so that other companies don't steal their technology. So it's a double-edged sword. You can either have too much siloing going on in that way and so that companies don't connect enough, or if you have it the other way, where the companies are all in each other's backyards, then there's the accusation of a kind of a monopoly situation, an overbearing situation of these big companies. So it's very hard to find that balance these days. Yes, it is. And as you know, we pay amongst the highest rates for data in the world, which creates another question regarding this entire profit motive of these companies and, as you say, the proprietorship in the way they operate. Yes, absolutely. So you can kind of telescope outwards from this incident because back in 2003, as you may recall, we also had a major technical breakdown when this power failure on the Northeast Coast affected about 50 million people. Yes. So it isn't the first time that the issue of technical failure has come up. Y2K was a major, major imaginary failure, if you like, because mm -hmm. things didn't fail in the end. They managed to somehow carry on and adjust the chronological issue there when it flips over to the year 2000, what happens? And there's all these doomsayers saying that Armageddon was going to happen if they didn't somehow solve that. And nothing really happened. It was a very quiet turnover. You and I have discussed this many times, our interdependency and extreme dependency actually on technology in general and the importance of our own headspace and our communities in our ability to adjust to such events. What is it that we can do individually and as a community to offset some of these problems? Right, and close to home, of course, in the last few years, we've been dealing with COVID and we've been, in a sense, convinced in some cases and coerced in others to take a medical technology 
that is now inside billions of people on this planet, a technology that had no long-term safety studies behind it, and yet was put into place through emergency measures all around the world. And so here we have a technology which is relatively new. There has been some previous experimentation with mRNA technologies, but never to this kind of extent. And so in a way, we're playing with a bit of fire here, even though we're being told, oh no, it's all good, the side effects are minimal, yada, yada, yada. They can't really say that for sure because not enough time has gone by. So we have to understand that technology isn't always the answer. So instead of just promoting a vaccination policy, they could have promoted more non-invasive forms of prevention, good diet, getting exercise, vitamins, that sort of thing to kind of bolster our immune systems. But that didn't really happen. They went right to the technology, it seemed to me. Yes. Basically, what you're saying is not to the exclusion of, be more inclusionary. Right. While we investigate, while we experiment, while we explore to continually improve the medical side of things, here are the things that you can do in the meantime that may be of help to you. Yes, exactly. And how often did we hear that? (laughs) Not very often. Well, I think part of the reason why people on the flip side get their backs up is because we didn't hear it. Right. And the other thing is this proprietary technology idea. Well, these mRNA companies could have made that technology, if it was so good, free across the planet. They could have just put it out there so that anybody could reproduce these vaccines cheaply. But that didn't happen either. So there's a certain level of greed that has become evident in terms of the rollout of these vaccinations, these so-called vaccinations. The pharma companies have made billions upon billions upon billions of dollars through this process. And we have to acknowledge that there is some of these decision-making scenarios where greed is involved. It's human nature, too. Can't deny that. Well, it's the same thing as happening with technology in general. When we talk about proprietorship with computers, with operating systems, with software, applications, one of the reasons why we're having this compatibility problem often is because of proprietorship. Instead of finding a uniform adapter or a uniform connector, each develops its own product to ensure that the customer base maintains and remains with the company. Right. And when that breaks down, you can't use your technology to hook into their system. And so you're out of luck. And as you say, not about relying solely on technology to be the savior of our existence. We just tend to trust that technology will find a way, that technology will come along to solve problem X and problem Y. And it doesn't always happen. So there have to be fail-safe mechanisms in place that are not technology-based, per se, and that human beings just on the ground living their lives can rely upon in times of breakdown in the technology. Yes, I just thought of a perfect example to illustrate what you're talking about. Navigation systems that we pretty much use all around. It's fairly ubiquitous. You go into your vehicle, it's either already in your vehicle or you're using your smartphone and you're punching in your destination and then you follow to a T whatever that particular device is giving you back. Oftentimes, though, there could be an interruption in the service. There could be other factors that affect that navigation system. 
whereby it would behoove you to know at least that you're going northeast, west, or south, and have a general idea of where you're going and where you should be, and not relying completely on that navigation system that is giving you every inch of movement and constantly putting out information to you, so that in the event that you do lose that connection, then you may have to recollect your data. However, you're not completely lost. That's when you pull out grandpa's <laughs> old compass from 1895. Right. Or you take a look up in the sky and see which side of your vehicle the sun is on. Right. You look for Venus in the sky or whatever and get your bearings from there. Mm-hmm. But see, what we're talking about here is a kind of reversion to an analog-based world again, a world where digitization hasn't happened yet. And we were relying back then on our fellow human beings to a greater degree than we do now. So the whole notion of community as a kind of fail-safe idea, I think, is a good notion to explore. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the 9-11 system breaks down. Well, if I'm not isolated from my neighbors, from my community, my spouse or my brother or sister can run next door and get Mr. McIntosh to drive me to the hospital immediately rather than waiting for an ambulance, which won't come because I can't get 9-11, where people in the community used to come to each other's aid and think about those thoughts more regularly. For example, Peter, this movement I've done from Ontario to Nova Scotia, which we talked about in the last podcast, I've discovered that neighborliness has a different feeling here than back in Ontario. In the rural communities, back in Ontario, there was a kind of isolation that happened. Even though you had a neighbor that you could see from your house, you'd rarely be back and forth with them talking. Once in a while, you would. You'd meet them at the fence or they're out walking their dog, etc. But it wasn't like they're calling you saying, I've noticed something on your property and what can I do to help? And maybe I can help you out with that. Whereas here, my wife and I weren't even yet moved into this house. We hadn't even set foot in this house when a neighbor contacted us saying, I saw a kind of plant on your property, which is a toxic plant. Would you like me to get my mower out and my whippersnipper and cut it down? Because there's a fair bit of it. They wanted to do that on our behalf. It was a little unusual, I think, and indicative of the way neighbors tend to relate to each other here. So community and the nature of community, I think, is an important dynamic to bring up as a sort of fail-safe mechanism for when technology breaks down. I'll read something very specific that correlates to how we began the conversation and where we are now talking about it from a human perspective, not just from a technological one. There's a statement that made the headlines. Minister Champagne's demand was that Canada's telecom companies work together and develop agreements for mutual assistance, emergency roaming, and better communication about outages in general. It's the same idea with community. It's about agreements. It's about working together to have things in place that enable us to rely also on one another in the event of any kind of overall failure. Yeah, the need for community centers. Most small towns in Canada, thankfully, have a little community center set up, even though it's rarely populated. 
It's there in the event that the community needs to get together to talk about something serious happening where people need to work together or be aware. Mm -hmm. But that seems to be shrinking that notion of community center, people gathering, especially with COVID, having put a psychological lock on the idea of gatherings. That's coming back, but more slowly than maybe it might. And so it's harder to kind of maintain community when government is telling you to stop meeting with people, stop associating. We're not over this yet, folks. It's still here. Keep your distance, yada, 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 yada. Well, one of the biggest catastrophes has been the breakdown of community over the last several years. And if community is to be a kind of fail-safe mechanism, it's very difficult to do that if community is being fragmented. For sure. And and perhaps uh, not just COVID, but as we're discussing the uh, recent event with Rogers, it happened here, but it can happen anywhere in any country at any time. The whole grid system is vulnerable due to the fact that there's so much reliance on the so-called central systems, as you mentioned, offshooting to smaller, more controllable units. So it applies to everything in our lives, including our food production. For example, in a community, if you buy local produce and local foods, you're much less likely to be affected by what's happening with all that food or product that's coming from outside your borders. Sure. If you're a community that's reliant on agribusiness to monopolize the growth of oranges, let's say, rather than small farms spread throughout the community or the province or what have you, producing different fruits, including oranges, then when one thing goes down, the other can kind of back it up. If one area has a disease attacking those oranges, another area may not. And so you could continue that food supply. And some of these foods are more necessary than others, let's say. But you know what I'm saying? The fail-safe in that system is diversity and not monoculture. Exactly. And that's what we've seen. This movement towards monoculture, monotechnology, mega multinationals controlling huge amounts of data or food or what have you. And that's dangerous. If it breaks down, millions upon millions of people are affected rather than a handful. Mm -hmm. So considering all that, these outages to me are sometimes blessings in disguise. As uncomfortable and as difficult as they are, they alert us to these problems which most of us kind of just forget over time. We just go about our daily business and just assume that everything is going to work and not think about these possibilities. Yeah, and hopefully these companies will become a bit more humble. It's very hard to apply the word humble to a company. (laughs) It's a very human thing, right? But for them to find some humility and to understand and to communicate that they are not perfect and that big mistakes can be made and that they have made a big mistake and to just bow their heads and say, we're really, really deeply sorry and mean it and not just try to deflect the blame onto someone else. So it was another company that wrecked our system or whatever it is that they do. And they do that now and then. They deflect blame. Companies need to just say, you know what, we understand we've done something that has affected millions upon millions, and we take full responsibility and bring on the court cases. We'll compensate everyone who was affected because these companies have the money to do that. And that humility that you're talking about also engenders a greater trust. Mm -hmm. People say, hey, okay, I make mistakes too. We're working together and we can fix this. Again, 
these things happen. They happen for a reason. When you do control such large sectors, the likelihood of failure also increases when you're detached from that connectivity to other companies or other individuals who can provide you with that. Yeah, and or if you grow too big for your britches, I mean, these pharma companies that have produced these vaccinations, they have taken great, great pains to deny at all levels any liability when it comes to adverse side effects that millions upon millions of people have experienced, some very, very serious. Unfortunately, they're not liable which is the strangest thing since their products affect the lives and the health of millions upon millions of people, and yet they don't have to take responsibility when their products break down. Very, very odd to me, and bespeaks of the whole idea of how lobbies have taken control of governments and have undue influence over governmental decision-making. So all of these things have to be addressed to fix what really is a problem with the way technology is being choreographed across society, in my view, anyway. Mm -hmm. There's also some kind of a counter argument there because I've heard many say, and again, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting, that technology is one of the reasons why these things were able to be done so quickly. In other words, the computer systems in place and the systems that have been developed over the years allow a much faster progression so that something that could have taken 10 years before they can now do in six months or a year or two. So we can never be 100% certain whether or not the test period was long enough, although I agree with you and I wouldn't bet my life on it. I just wanted to indicate that there are counter arguments to this whole idea of testing Yeah, there's some truth to it. I mean, you can have lots of research that would go into this kind of technology. But the fact is, soon as that technology enters a human being, and because human beings aren't robots, everyone is different, these things are going to have adverse effects in certain cases. It has to be acknowledged. And they barely acknowledged that there was any effects at all. They were all mild, according to these companies. But it became clear with myocarditis and pericarditis, blood clots, the J&J vaccines that were taken away, AstraZeneca was halted. All of these things are after the fact, but they shouldn't be after the fact. These companies really should be forced to show, not without a doubt, because there's always some doubt, but for the most part, that this was a very, very safe technology. And there really wasn't enough time to prove that, to show that. So because of the push of the pandemic, governments decided to forego that uh, necessary preliminary business and went right to administering it to the population. So this is a dangerous game when that happens. So I think we have to try to change the way we operate with technology and the way governments respond to technology and use it in order to avoid these kinds of problems. The other thing is this whole Arrive Can app issue, Mm -hmm. where people are saying that it's an invasion of our privacy. The data that is being gathered through that app application, governments can use it in all kinds of ways. So there's also the privacy issue and the way technology engages the way society works and how private our lives now. They're less and less private as we go, it seems to me. Initially, we began this conversation on 
the issue of network failure and what are we learning. This whole discussion has been really based on our questioning the technologies in whatever form it takes, whether it's digital communication, whether it's being utilized for health reasons, whether it's for our food supply, our infrastructures, and so on. Really, what is it that we're learning? Yeah, and the other question to go with that is, what actually is a network? What actually is community? And how does it function well? When is a community a healthy community? When is a network a healthy network? I mean, it's the technical side of that, like when's a healthy network healthy in terms of the fail-safe mechanisms, the connection to other companies' technologies to make that fluid enough to improve things if there's a failure. And then also in human community, how do we keep that going given that our lives are becoming more and more isolated, it seems, as time goes on here. And the fear factor plays into it as well in terms of getting together again after this virus, this pandemic. So it's a real evolution that we have to move through here. It's not just about talking, it's about doing and being, whether it's in the community or whether you're part of a company dealing with network issues. So I think we're in a very interesting place, and uh, I'd like to see what's going to happen in all those directions. So when you talk about understanding networks, you're also talking about creating the fail-safe systems within that network, which you cannot do without a proper kind of community effort. Yeah, on the human side and on the technology side, as the government is forcing these companies to do, they're having to kind of, in a sense, loosen their lock on their proprietary technology and begin to make it more connective to others. And that way, there's fail-safe mechanisms built in there. So it wasn't the first failure. Technically, it won't be the last, but we have to find a way of being resilient through these kinds of emergencies or these moments of breakdown and carry on our saga as a human race. Don't you think this also illustrates the significance, and we've talked about this in podcasts previous to this, including the trilogy that we did with Andrew Welch, yeah. where we talked about the role of government being a supervisory board rather than being affected directly by lobby groups. So it's incumbent on governments not to stop progress or investigation or testing or research but to put in some checks and balances, which you would normally do in a community network. There would be people that would be voting. There would be people that would be discussing. that would say, hold it, let's check this out, or let's move in this direction, or what do you think of this? And we need government to take that role more so, perhaps, than we've had in the last 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah, and government can actually utilize technology that is readily available to kind of ask the population, what do you think? This is a serious moment in our history. There's an emergency in place. What do you think? And to take the temperature of the population very quickly, rather than determining what is best for everybody based upon a few little experts in their circle, to actually get a sense for what the population would prefer to see happen, whether it's through immediate technical plebiscites or what have you, but the technology is there for actual democracy to function in a healthier, more immediate way. And we need to go there, I think. Absolutely. Putting more back into the individual citizens and being treated 
as individuals that matter in a population. Yes. And the other aspect too, Peter, is our expectation, partly produced through the promises of technology, that there will never be breakdowns, that these things should absolutely never, ever happen. When in fact, being human, they are going to happen. (laughs) And we have to, in a sense, expect these breakdowns and prepare for them in certain ways and change our expectations, right? 100%, 100%. Be realistic because this functions no differently in anything else we've ever done, whether it's digital or analog. Things do happen. Yeah. And the question is not if, it's when and what have you got in place to deal with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe it's uh, having your grandpa's <laughs> old compass from 1895 It's not a bad thing to have in your junk drawer or wherever you have it. Like having these analog backups, just to have them is maybe not a bad thing. No, like an old-fashioned map in your glove compartment. Sure, absolutely. So we're not saying turn the clock back to 1895, but we're just saying don't discount these kinds of more on-the-ground technologies. When times of trouble come, we may need them. What was the old saying, don't fix if it ain't broke? Yeah, exactly. Don't fix it if it ain't broke. So uh, (laughs) there you go. I think we need to find a way to look at technology in a different way, through a different lens, in order to understand why things happen the way they do in that world and how to respond to that appropriately. Yeah, and remember that technology is a tool. It does not take the place of humanity. It does not take the place of our connection to one another. It enhances or it should enhance or should improve our lives, but not necessarily take over. I think that's what's actually happening in many cases. Yeah. And when that happens, a failure has many more consequences than when we're somewhat independent of that world. We're able to fall back on our own resources. We can grow our own food. If you have a little piece of property, you can build your own primitive technologies to carry on and survive. In fact, a lot of people during this period in the last few years have turned to a kind of survivalist methodology or a survivalist mentality, I should say, to be able to fall back on one's own resources and not rely on a government so much, not rely on technology so much, because the fear is that there will be breakdowns more often than not. And if you want to survive, you have to figure it out yourself. And so that's happening for sure. And the same can be applied to interconnectivity between large corporations. When you have three telecom companies who dominate the nation's communication systems, then it's incumbent on those three companies to do exactly what you just described only do it between companies as we would between people, share resources. This is the whole issue of privatization versus nationalization of things. So it's an ongoing argument or discussion. Exactly. And in the end, having a couple of Dixie cups and a long string (laughs) would go a long way towards... (laughs) That's my fail-safe mechanism. Well, listen, you got two people who sit in a room, literally at a dining room table who are texting each other from one side of the table to the other. Two cans and a string would work perfectly in the event of failure. (laughs) Absolutely right. And on that note, let's not fail to say goodbye, Peter. (laughs) Ciao. Ciao, Harry. 
The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.